Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 162. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, I am pleased to be joined by Mr. Nick Winkleman. Nick, how are you doing? Steve, I am phenomenal. Looking forward to being on. (laughs) So... I know who you are, and I think a lot of people who are listening probably also already do because they keep recommending that I try to get you on the podcast. But for those who don't, why don't you give yourself a bit of an introduction just so everyone knows what you're up to, what your your background is? Yeah, Steve. No, no. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity here. So I'll I'll try to give the the short version. The problem is the longer you're in any any field, these intros keep getting longer and longer. So (laughs) uh, to, to keep it very brief, albeit I oftentimes fail at this. I've been a strength conditioning coach now for just about 20 years. And in those 20 years, it's exactly what you think about when you hear strength conditioning. I've been a student of the weight room. I've been a student of movement. I've been a student of athletic development and how we optimize uh, this, this physical thing that we call the human condition. Fortunately, I've worked across a diversity of sports. So my first 10 years, give or take in the game, I was working at a place called Athletes Performance, now called Exos in Phoenix, Arizona. And there I really cut my teeth working with NFL and NFL combine athletes. So American football primarily. And within that, if I got my name for anything, it was around helping athletes basically run the 40 yard dash as fast as possible. So I very much so am a glorified track coach and I found myself very much so falling in love with movement, skill, development, recognizing that strength and what goes on in the weight room, which by the name strength conditioning coach is critically important. It was really more of bringing it all together and transferring it to the field that woke me up in the morning. And so over the 10 years there, I ran the NFL combine development program amongst other things, worked in elite military uh, across a diversity of sports. So that was kind of me as a coach. On the other half of it, I was a coach educator and still am a coach educator. And so I ran our coach education department, traveled all around the world running our mentorship programs, which basically were four-day programs where we taught the methodology of athletes' performance. And as I said, now EXOS. Working there for 10 years, inevitably, I wanted to challenge myself in a different sport, in a different context. And in 2016, had the opportunity to join Irish Rugby as the now head of athletic performance and science. And I'm going into my sixth year working for Irish Rugby. In this role, it's a little bit different, a bit more of a leadership role overseeing our national as well as our four professional teams driving strength conditioning methodology and sports science. But still, fortunately, I'm on the ground coaching at least once a week, still in kind of my comfort zone around movement, skill development, agility, and speed. And so that's, if you would, that's me as an S&C coach. But hiding within those 20-some years is a passion, a passion that still burns very bright today. And that is the impact of us as a coach as a communicator on the individual we seek to support and develop. And so throughout that time, I inevitably got a a PhD in motor learning, basically studying the intersection between what we say as a coach and how it impacts what an athlete thinks while they move. Ultimately recognizing that what an athlete thinks while they move has a whole lot of impact on how they move, perform, and learn to move. And inevitably over time, that gave rise to me writing the book that I wish I had had just starting out. And that's 
The Language of Coaching, which was published in 2020. And basically, you know, within that, it looks at the intersection between what we say, how we communicate as a coach, and the impact, the real, tangible, measurable impact it has on our athletes. And so that, if you would, still serves and pulsates through me as a coach educator alongside being a coach. So those are the flashpoints of the last 20 years and gives you a bit of insight into what wakes me up and keeps me up. Fantastic. And that last bit, your book, The Language of Coaching, was the thing that put you on my radar and I think the radar of most of the people listening who are familiar with your work. I've said on the podcast before that one of the things about our sport, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, is that it is still a new and evolving sport and I would say is not as far along the development curve as a lot of other sports that have been around longer, particularly when it comes to the the scientific approach that we use to the way that we train. Still at the majority of Jiu-Jitsu gyms, if you go into the gym, Basically, the instructor method is you got a room with an instructor and they regurgitate some sort of technique. So they'll say, today, everyone, we're doing this takedown and they'll show everyone all of the steps to do that and they'll make everyone copy it. And then they'll just tell people, go off and spar. And that's basically it. I would be surprised if most of the coaches in the jiu-jitsu community have put any thought whatsoever into the importance of the language they choose. And I agree with you completely. I know how much of a difference that makes because I can still remember situations from when I was much, much younger and I had a teacher or a coach who either used the right words in the right situation and it stuck with me forever, or they used the wrong words in the wrong situation and I misinterpreted or I misunderstood and the lesson just didn't stick with me the same way. So with that being said, Nick, I'd love to dig into this a little bit. When you talk about the language of coaching, give me a bit of a primer here on what you've discovered in terms of what coaches do right, what they do wrong. I'd love to just kind of dig into this a little bit deeper. Yes, there's a lot in here. And I think the best way to dive in is to experience it. And so what I'd like to do, obviously for you, Steve, and everyone listening is I want to walk you through a bit of a thought experiment. And we're going to utilize this thought experiment to come into direct contact with the principles that we can then name and unpack and hopefully generate some practical recommendations for everyone listening. And so what we're going to do is we are going to imagine that we're on a track. And so you'll have to excuse me not having my Brazilian jiu-jitsu background uh, uploaded (laughs) here. I'm going to use sprinting. And hopefully it's a, a general activity that everyone can imagine themselves performing in one guise or another. So we're going to use that as our canvas for this thought experiment. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you imagine performing a 10-yard or 10-meter sprint based on where you are in the world. And you're going to imagine running that sprint under three different conditions. And in each condition, you're going to have a different focus, a different mental headlight driving your intensity and your intentions during that. Okay, so you can imagine yourself, you're getting down into the blocks under a three-point stance, even kind of in the mind's eye, you can look up down the track or, or down the field or the turf, whatever you prefer. Heck, if you want to do this on your, on your front garden or the street in front of your house, by all means, go for it. But see yourself, <laughs> feel yourself down on the ground, look up to see you have this 10-yard runway, okay? Now, head goes down, tension in the body, here's the first cue. Here's the mental headlight that's going to drive your intensity and intention for that 10-yard sprint. I want you to focus on rapidly extending your knees. Okay, this is option number one. This is cue number one. Focus on rapidly extending your knees with every single step over the 10 yards. Okay, so if you're listening in, go ahead and run that repetition through your mind. Okay, now we're going to go to number two. We're going to go to number two, clear the decks. You're still on the ground. You still feel the tension. You're back in that three or four point stance. You've looked up clear runway in front of you. Now here's the cue. I want you to focus on rapidly pushing the ground away. Focus on rapidly pushing the ground away with every single pulsating step over the 10 yards. Okay. That's your, that's your second rep. And let's say for fun, we're timing all of these. 
okay? You've walked back, you've cleared it, we've got one final repetition. You're down in the three or the four point stance. Again, you've looked up, you see the runway in front of you, body is full of tension, here's the last cue. I want you to imagine there is a rattlesnake right behind your back leg and it's about to bite. I want you to beat the bite. Beat the bite with every single step, okay? So if we now come out of our trance here, we have our three repetitions loaded up. I'll remind you the cues were rapidly extend your knees. You could have equally said rapidly extend your hips. The second option was rapidly push the ground away. And then the third was the rattlesnake. Beat the bite, beat the bite. Let me put it back to you, Steve. Walk us through in your own thought experiment there, how did those cues feel? Did they all feel the same? If not, how were they different? And finally, which one would you bet on? If I did that experiment in <laughs> Vegas, which one are you putting money on to run the fastest 10-yard time? Well, I'll tell you my perception here right out of the gate. The first one about rapidly extending your knees as a jujitsu person, the thought of doing that just terrifies me because knee injuries are so common in jujitsu. And one of the things that they that you learn pretty quickly is to just manage where your knees are and kind of be controlled with them. The second one where you're talking about pushing off of the ground, this is an example of now where unlike the first idea, there's a bit of a kind of a visual, an explanation of what the goal is, right? Right. When you say it's rapidly extending your knees, to me, that doesn't really have any meaning or purpose behind it. You know, you could be talking about anything or you could you could be talking about cycling when you're talking about pushing off of the ground. At least now there's a bit of context in terms of what I'm trying to do. And I can sort of see how that description equates to the sport. But it also doesn't feel particularly sticky. It doesn't really tie into a why or a motivation. I love the rattlesnake explanation, though. <laughs> I, mean, I, I would run pretty fast if I thought I had to get away from a rattlesnake like that. So for me, if you were to ask me to guess, I would assume that the, the three that you gave are kind of in terms of effectiveness. They go up in scale with each level. And I'd assume that rattlesnake person is probably going to move the fastest. You'd be a hundred percent correct. So let's, let's unpack this. And, and I use this thought experiment quite often. So I, I have a good level of feedback I can offer both anecdotally as well as empirically to everyone listening in. So let's, let, let's go back. What did we do? You're correct. We offered up three different, call them versions or categories of cues. And these three versions broadly represent and overlap the type of things that coaches of every single type of sport and skill will use when they're trying to communicate movement. And I want to pause on that. I'm going to say that phrase again, communicate movement. Because we communicate a lot of things when we coach. Sometimes we communicate critique. Sometimes we communicate motivation. Sometimes we communicate just general energy. Sometimes we communicate when the next session is. But the thing that we are talking about, when we say things like language of coaching and coaching communication, we're talking about the language we specifically use to communicate and talk about movement in service of upgrading that movement such that it sticks, to use your word, Steve, the stickiness of it, okay? So when it comes to communicating movement, teaching movement, instructing movement, we find it falls into these three categories. And so category number one, which relates to the extend the knees, is what we call an internal cue. And as you might guess by that label, we use the term internal because it's referencing something inside of the body. So it's any explicit reference to a joint, muscle, or limb, full stop, where you're asking them to think about the movement of that joint, extend your knees, extend your hips, the action of that muscle, squeeze your quads, squeeze your glutes, squeeze your abs, or the motion of your limb, drive your leg back, for example, throw your elbow up, for example. These are all what we call internal cues. And you're right, Steve, and I love that you picked it up. They lack context. Unless you have the context of physically being there, if you just hear the cue by itself, it's free-floating in space. It doesn't seem to be connected to the external reality that we know we're bound to, okay? That brings us to category number two, 
which in our little thought experiment was push the ground away. This, if there's an internal cue, you probably guessed it. There's an external cue. And an external cue very simply references the outcome I am trying to achieve in a context, in an environment, or the way I interact with the environment to achieve the outcome. So using our sprint example as a constant here, telling someone to push the ground away, hiding with inside of that, it's knowing that if I push the ground away, I'll get extension in the lower limb, and if I get good extension and power, I run faster. So the way to move the body, if you would, the internal stuff is embedded, is hidden inside of the external offering, connecting body to environment, push the ground away. In that regard, you can think of it like a Trojan horse. All the internal technical jargon is hidden inside of a very simple identifiable cue, push the ground away. Then we get into the third category, which is a form of an external cue, but we call that specifically an analogy. Whereas internal and external, extend your knee, push the ground away, that's literal. Those are, you literally have knees <laughs> and you literally have ground that you are trying to push away. The third category is analogous. It's figurative. I'm giving you a mental image, a picture, and I'm asking you to move as if, to act as if there was a rattlesnake behind you. What would you do? Right. And the trigger to help you stay in that mental state is beat the bite, beat the bite. And so those three types of cues, if people inspect their own language, direct reference to the body, direct reference to the goal relating to the environment I'm moving in or the opponent I'm working against, or some kind of figurative language analogy that's very visual imagery sticky to use your word again, Steve, we find that our language spans those three categories. Now, the question is, which is more effective? Well, let's start with intuition and then evidence, and then I'll stop talking and we can start to unpack this. I just completed a research study with colleagues on this, where we basically gave 16 different movements and we did that thought experiment. And we gave them internal cues, external cues, and analogies and asked them to select. And in that study, between 80 and 90% of people had a consistent non-random preference for external cues and analogies with a minority, right? Just a handful of individuals having a preference for internal language in terms of what they would think about while they move to optimize performance. You then take on top of that every single time I offer up this thought experiment, whether it be virtual or live webinars, presentations at conferences, easily by my estimates, you're going to get nine out of 10 individuals, at least eight out of 10 individuals vote for that analogy in that specific example. And so we're finding that intuitively people seem to think that the external cue and the analogy is easier to apply. It's easier to remember and oftentimes has greater emotional currency, which normally are like the little mental hashtags that allow something to be memorable in the first place. What about evidence? Very simply put, there's what we call a lit review. And a lit review basically looks at all the evidence on a topic. Well, the supreme form of a lit review in science called a meta-analysis literally just came out in December. And it looked at now what is the 21 years, right? Actually closer to 22 years that this subject matter has been researched with the first study coming out in late 1998. And what it showed is without question, external cues and analogies when it comes to immediate performance, but more importantly, long-term learning outperform internal language consistently over and over and over again. And so what we know is both intuitively, grab a glass of water, you're not having to calculate shoulder, elbow, and wrist angular velocity to know how to pick it up and quench your thirst. You know this intuitively and empirically, it's external cues and analogies. But here's the problem, Steve. Another paper just came out, which evaluated every single study to date that actually listens to coaches and therapists while they coach. And here's someone who's been doing this for 20 years, listening to himself coach 
and thousands of coaches in my career as a coach educator. And what they find in the studies aligns to what I see. And that is approximately 60 to 70% of the language that comes out of coaches' mouth, mouths when it comes to communicating movement, guess what category it falls into? Internal. Internal, yep. internal, internal. So we are seeing an explicit violation of our intuition, an explicit violation of the evidence that only reinforces the intuition. If we would only look up, wake up to how we ourselves would want to learn and access skill learning, we have this unbelievable method that requires literally not a single dime except the, the time invested in learning how to optimize what you say, when you say it, and how you say it. And, and that's for me, there's a lifetime in this. Yeah, I love that, man. That is an amazing explanation. And I would guess, and again, this is just a guess. I don't have any data to back this, but from my experience just in the jujitsu space, I would guess that 60 to 70% of coaches using internal explanations for our sport, that's probably low. It really feels to me like you're getting closer to 80 or 90% the way that people in our sport teach. Generally with jujitsu, the descriptions are very internal and very specific where your coach will come in and they'll say things like, you know, they'll tell you exactly where your left arm should go and exactly where your right arm should go. And, and your legs and your spine, and they'll try to position you exactly the way in their mind's eye that every body part should be. And then if it's not working, they'll come by and they'll give you some micro adjustment advice, like, you know, turn your arm five degrees to the left or something like that. And most coaches seem to use that method, I think just out of naivety and just not really having ever thought about the importance of language. But so much of the way that we instruct in this sport is internal. And Interestingly, one of the main complaints that most students bring up is they can't remember anything. They can't integrate anything. You know, their coach will sit there and bombard them with hundreds of tiny little technical details, and those will just fly right over their head. Or maybe they can mimic them during the course of the class, but they forget afterwards and they don't understand how they work. So I love this idea of moving more towards explaining in the context of your environment and providing a a powerful analogy that helps make things more sticky, right? I mean, as human beings, if you can tie something to a story, it usually makes it more sticky. So I love this concept. And I think it's something that most instructors, if they're not already doing, could benefit a lot from. A hundred percent. Now, if someone's listening right now, bored out of their mind and about to turn it off, I have a health warning. So give me five minutes of your time <laughs> because we have to tie some of the absolutely critical things you just said in here. Okay. First one is this. If people listen to the first 20 minutes of this, they might think if they just stopped it right after the first 20 minutes, okay, what Nick and Steve are saying then is I got to trash my internal language. I can't talk about the elbow position or the knee position or the foot position in these highly technical skills and body forms that we have to get our, our athletes into. Okay, let me go to work figuring that out. No, 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 no. Let me be very clear right now. No one's getting kicked off the island. Okay, no one's getting kicked off the block when it comes to coaching language. The key thing here is it's an and, not an or. It's an and, not an or. We are adding something. We're adding an ingredient. We're adding a tool. We're sharpening a tool here. So what do I mean by that? When I'm initially coaching any skill, whether it's sprinting or an arm bar, okay, there is absolute merit in using description. Literally describing, hey, here's the drill, here's the skill, here's what needs to happen. It might be a live demonstration, it might be a video, it might just be a verbal explanation. Either way, when you are describing something, you are trying to give the person general background information on, and here's the key word, Steve, on what, W-H-A-T, what they're going to do and likely why they're going to do it. But the challenge is, how do I go from what to how? That's what I'm hearing from you, Steve. How do I yeah. go from what? All of this descriptive detail on the shoulder, the elbow, the wrist, the fingers, the lower body. How do I, and I love the word you used, how do I integrate it? How do I create oneness out of this multiplicity of verbal prompts that I was just given? 
Okay, how do I combine the 20 ingredients I just bought at the grocery store into one singular meal? That's the challenge of every coach on the outgoing end, and that's the challenge of every athlete on the incoming end. And that's where this idea of going from having a description to having a description, a demonstration, and a cue. A description, a demonstration, and a cue. The description tells them what they're going to do. The demonstration visually shows them how to do it. And the cue, well, that's the pair of glasses. That's the singular conductor in the symphony. That's the one address in the GPS. It's the little morsel of mental guidance that's going to help you tie everything together. And so for people listening then, what we're finding is too many coaches live and die by their descriptions. They think it is enough to describe the movement, likely give a good demonstration, and let the athlete figure it out. Now, let's be honest. People have been learning how to move under the guidance of coaches, heavily dependent upon internal cues, for a very long time. So you still can get better on that route. The reality is, though, there is a better way that we are offering, and that's to bring in the cue. And so let me color that one level deeper, and let me use an anecdote every single person likely on this will be able to to recognize in themselves, if not in others. And so, Steve, I'll, I'll direct this to you. Have you ever had the experience either as a fighter, as an athlete, or as a coach, as an instructor, where this goes through your mind? I know what to do. I just don't know how to do it. Has the, have you ever had that experience? Probably more times experience. than you care to remember. That's, that's my life story. That's my life story. <laughs> the amount of people that say that. And so, Steve, that's, I don't want to say that's what I'm offering. I am a, I am a steward of a solution to that problem. And the steward is going from internal only to internal and external. It's going from what to how. And so our descriptive internal language is the language of what. But our external and our analogical, our figurative visual language, as long as it's directed at the right thing that needs to improve, that's the language of how. To how to do something. The oneness. To to shed the words and be left with the unavoidable feeling of what to do next. Because if I have to think and process the words you just gave me, I'm not in the body. I'm not sensing and feeling what this skill is that is meant to be realized in my body against the opponent. And so the external cue allows us to do that. So using our sprinting example here, I might have someone come up, I'm working with someone, and let's say they're not getting enough extension. They're not pushing the ground away. They look like that sprinter who is having a temper tantrum, taking 20 steps when they only needed to take 10. I might say to them, Steve, I need you to get better extension. See in this video, that hip, that knee, and that ankle need to get much longer with every single stride. And then I might say to do that, to do that, I want you to focus on hammering the ground. Just like you'd hammer a nail, I want you to hammer the ground as hard and as completely as you can with every single step over the next 10 meters. And so what I've done there is I've blended the two together. I've clearly outlined what needs to change. We can talk about it. We have common language. That's the internal stuff. But now I have given them or I've collaborated with them in the creation of a mental focus that they can actually embrace and step into while they perform the movement that connects them to the environment in terms of the skill change. I'm going to say that again, connects them to the environment in terms of the skill change. And that's what mastering external cues and analogies allows you to do. It's an and, not an or. Internal cueing is not getting kicked off the island. That's a really important thing to bring up because I think that when you explain this to people and you explain the limitations of just providing internal cues where the mind just inherently goes is, okay, no more internal cues. We're going to talk in metaphors for the rest of our lives. But I, I love this explanation you've got of how they all integrate together. I would ask if you're a coach and you're trying to marry these three things, then 
is there a magic formula? Is it like 30, 30, 40% or is there a particular order of attack where you're better off explaining, you know, are you better giving an internal example first and then a metaphor or are you better giving the metaphor first? I'm just wondering if there's a playbook for how you integrate all of these three different pieces into an instructional plan. Well, Absolutely, there is. And so if if people want to learn more about this, there's literally an entire chapter around this blueprint in my book. So shameless plug, I do apologize. <laughs> but the model that you're pointing towards, which for me has has never failed my process as, and this is the word I use, organizing my coaching language, organizing my coaching language, such that I say the right things at the right time, lending to your point in the right way. And so I call this the coaching communication loop. Now I use each of those words precisely, but the one I want to emphasize is the idea of a loop. And that usually we are offering, not always, but usually we're offering some kind of language before a movement, a skill, a drill takes place, possibly during, and then afterwards. And each step, like a set of dominoes, is meant to impact the subsequent one, ideally positively. And if it's a loop, that means when we get to the final step, the insight from the final step helps me start that loop over again, more informed, and thus is a self-regulatory, a self-improving system for coaching communication. And so we've actually talked about the first three of what is a total of five steps. Now, already, I'm going to put a health warning on this. It's going to sound very linear. It's going to sound very prescriptive. No, these are these are principles. These are building blocks. You don't always need to use every step. Rather, when you do use a step, the model provides guidance. And I'm going to say that again. You do not need to use every single step every time that I'm about to go through. But when you do decide to use a step, the model provides you with guidance. That's how I want you to think of this. And so the loop, and there's a diagram that goes along with this, a fairly simple one, shows like Russian nesting dolls, there's a long loop, which has all five steps, all five categories, whatever synonym you like, and then a short loop, which is just made up of the last three steps, okay? The long loop, very simple, is used when you are teaching something for the first time or you need to provide a more in-depth reminder, maybe on the back of an extended period off, like a holiday break. The short loop is when you are teaching something or you're engaging with an athlete in a skill that they're familiar with, okay? So let's go through the long loop. We'll use uh, we'll use sprinting here again, and, and, and you'll have to excuse me for that, but again, trying to keep something very simple and relatable. So <laughs> step one is you describe the movement. Literally, think of describing a drill. Hey, Steve, we're about to go through this you know, acceleration, sprinting wall drill, right? Literally, that's how you're opening up. Here's where your hands go. Here's where your feet go. Here's what it looks like, okay? So you're providing a description. The anatomy of a description usually has three ingredients. Ingredient one is describing what the movement looks like, possibly feels like. That's your internal, that's your technical stuff. Two, safety information, which I would imagine in your sport is quite important. And then three, motivational energy. So you might say, hey, this specific throw or this specific maneuver is a lot like this other one you've done in the past. And what you're trying to do is get motivational transference where, hey, I know I can do that pretty well. Oh, okay. Coach is saying this is kind of like that. And so that description has one part technical information, one part safety, and one part human, right? We're just talking motivation, self-belief, getting them going. Those three things might get wrapped up into a a 10-second spiel, or for some people, a few minutes. I I can't give you a predetermined formula. It depends on what you're teaching. The big thing I always say there is brevity is your best friend. Only give them as much information as they need for the next moment. Only give them as much information as they need for the next moment, because there's always going to be future moments where you can come back in and here's the word I like, layer descriptive information over time as to not increase cognitive pollution and burden the brain. So we describe it. 
Now, as you've already alluded to, Steve, and this is not, this is, sounds like it's true of your sport, it's true of many others, as well as strength conditioning, as well as physical therapy, and that is we live and die by the description. We think that that's enough. It's not enough. So the description is verbal. The second thing we do is a demonstration. It could be video. It could be another athlete. It could be you yourself as the coach. Now, if you were to look at the diagram here, you'll see that I have these reciprocating arrows between description and demonstration. Those are a partnership. That's providing visual and verbal information. Again, here's the word about what to do. Some coaches like to communicate while they're demonstrating, demonstrate first, then communicate. I don't give hard rules. But those two things kind of go together as the initial information offering. And it's kind of like, think of it, you're at a museum and you're looking at a, at a picture from five feet away. You're kind of getting the big picture view of what you're looking at. The cue then allows you to go into the detail. It allows the museum director to say, well, hey, look at this specific part of the painting. Notice that. That's what the cue is. And so the cue is the external cue or the analogy. It gives them the one singular thought around what to focus on in terms of that next movement or drill. Now, we can get into how to generate cues here in a moment, but the key thing with the cue is it needs to target a key problem with the skill that we're trying to upgrade. So as I said earlier with my fictional individual who's not getting hip extension and knee extension when they're sprinting, that's the error. So I'm trying to come up with an external cue that still respects the oneness of the whole movement, but does it through a targeted focus that emphasizes, in this case, the pushing of the ground, which unavoidably requires better hip, knee, and ankle extension. So cue is our third step. Fourth step, learning happens in doing. It's the do it part of it. Now, do we communicate while they perform the movement? Under two conditions do we communicate while they're moving. Either one, to provide rhythmical support. So when I'm teaching skipping or, or reoccurring type patterns like running, it might be push, 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 snap, 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 right? It might be a single then word of emphasis. Boom, throw, burst, pop. So either single word emphasis or repetitive language, which is almost operating like music or a metronome. We do not provide or layer in new information in the midst of performing a movement. And even though we know this intuitively as individuals, we are guilty of it again and again as a coach. I cannot yep. do the movement and think about the movement at the same time. I cannot do the movement and think about the movement at the same time. Those require the same asset that can only be applied to one of them. And that's called our attention. I can relate to this so much because in jujitsu, this happens all the time. You're trying to practice some move and your instructor will wander by and say, oh, no, no, hold on. Stop, Steve. Stop. Your elbow's got to be tucked in. Oh, no. Okay. Now you moved your other foot. You got to bring this foot back and they'll just hit you while you're drilling. You're trying to do this move and they'll just hit you with a hundred little details. And now you're just overloaded because you're trying to actually spar with another human being while you're being barked at <laughs> with new instructions and orders. And you're in a room with 20 or 30 of your peers sitting there watching you struggle like an idiot. You know, it's not a good feeling, but yet so many coaches do this and it clearly doesn't work. Yeah. So we're going to put a, a footnote on that one here. We're going to come back to we'll flag it. We'll come back to it because th this model is designed to help that coach deal with those scenarios as you've described. So once we've done it, whether it's one rep or it might be a five minute block, and this is what I'm saying, that the, the do it portion is not fixed into one idea. It's just a body of work. The more elite I am or the more experienced I am, the longer that doing phase likely can be for any given movement under the, the command of the athlete themselves. Because obviously over time, we want to give more and more autonomy and control and put the athlete in the driver's seat of their own learning journey. Because ultimately, they're the one out there fighting. They're the one out there performing the skill day in, day out, not us as the coach. Okay. Final step then is the debrief. I'm using debrief as a synonym for providing feedback. But here I use the term debrief very specifically in that I'm trying to debrief with the athlete to identify the next best cue. 
the next best focus. And so it's a conversation. It's a dialogue, not a monologue between myself and the athlete. And ultimately that debrief, it can be very short and it doesn't necessarily have to happen after every drill or every rep, but there will be time periods, right? Tell me if I'm wrong, Steve, where you want to check in and you want to help either course correct or confirm that the course they're on is the path they need to be taking. And I call that the debrief. And in the debrief, you're trying to identify one of three things. Do I need to repeat the cue or reiterate the cue because it's working? Fine. Do I need to refine the cue? So remember earlier how we said at the very top of this podcast, rapidly extend the knees, rapidly push the ground away, beat the bite. Maybe for a period of time I was using rapidly push the ground away. It wasn't quite given the stickiness or the impact I wanted with you, Steve. I then might shift to the analogy of beat the bite. It still relates to the same technical error, but it's just phrased in a different way. That's what I mean by refining the cue. The cue is directed at the right error, but I just need to find different words, different phraseology to get to the words that work. And then the third final possibility is I need to retire the cue, not forever, but just for that person and that movement. I retire a cue either A, because it's lost its potency, its shelf life has expired, or B, because the cue either didn't work or it backfired and made them worse. We've all been victims of both on the receiving and the offering side of things of giving cues that have the opposite effect as intended. And so in that case, I'm retiring that cue and I'm back to the drawing board. And so let's zoom back out five steps, describe it, demonstrate it, cue it, do it, debrief it. Once I've gone through all five, maybe just in one session over a handful of sessions, I then get to the short loop. Q, do, debrief. Q, do, debrief. It is the Swiss Army knife of coaching communication. If I'm going through those three steps, doesn't mean on every rep or every set, but every so often I'm updating the Q, I'm updating the mental focus. You talk about mental models here, the podcast, mental focus, and I'm using that debrief, that discussion, that dialogue, whatever D you prefer to work with that athlete. Now, People will immediately start to say, well, what happens if I'm working with a, a young athlete or an inexperienced athlete? Then that means you might not utilize that debrief at first until you understand their authentic movement, until they've done enough doing that they understand their authentic movement. This is what I said earlier. You don't have to use every step every single time, but there will come a time where you need a debrief. And that debrief ultimately is in service of feeding insights back to that original cue to help get them to the mental state that allows them to perform when it matters. And you said something really important earlier, Steve, around your athletes, your fighters being able to perform well, possibly during training, but not transferring that to competition. That is a classic symptom of internal cueing. That I can leverage heavily my memory of all these internal cues when it's slow and out of a competitive forum. But the second I get the competitive juices flowing, all that mental energy goes towards the fighter in front of me. And I cannot have online thinking of body parts. And that's where I need cueing that sinks to the bottom of my soul that becomes part of me, that no longer is thought as I think about words on a page, but is felt. I extracted the meaning. I felt the meaning of the words rather than having to think about it. When we say beat the bite, you feel it first. And then if I ask you to analyze it, you will. But if I tell you to rapidly extend your knees, it starts with the mind and it's hard pressed to get it into the body. That's what we're offering here both the intellectual in your description so you can still talk about the movement, but get them embodied, enacted, and engaged with the environment. Build the bridge. That's the external cue in the analogy. So the DDCDD, describe it, demonstrate it, cue it, do it, debrief it, long loop, short loop, cue, do, debrief. Secret weapon, blueprint, never has failed me. Got it. This makes a ton of sense. And I can see a, a shadow benefit here too, especially in a combat sport. Challenge that coaches often have when they're coaching a live competition is you've basically got your guy or girl 
and their opponent, and they're both within shouting range. And so anything that you say to your your guy or girl, your opponent's going to hear. So this always makes coaching a bit difficult because if you yell an instruction at your person, like do a takedown, well, the opponent now heard that as well. And now they know the game plan, right? That the cat's out of the bag. Whereas I guess another shadow benefit of using uh, metaphoric language like you're describing here is that your opponent may not necessarily have any clue what you're talking about. So that gives you almost like a secret language that you can use with your your person so that your opponent isn't able to also understand your coaching techniques as well when you're actually in a fight. That seems to me to be one other possible benefit of using that language. Yeah, I mean, I love that you called it a shadow benefit. I think that's that's awesome. But this is an explicit benefit. And you're pointing to something remarkably important here that is invisible in plain sight, so to speak. And that is a coach's words become an athlete's thoughts. A coach's words literally are transformed into what the athlete thinks. It becomes if you would, codified into how they talk to themselves about how to move. And and just if coaches allow that to simmer down and and to rest inside of them and to marinate, they'll start to get the sense of, am I communicating using language that I would be happy with if that's how they were thinking during competition? And I think when you start to put it that way, and you map that against our, our thought experiment early on and others that could take its place, we quickly see that, oh, I, I would much rather them being external, being focused on outcome, being focused on environment, analogically, figurative, simple to remember language that is felt more than thought about. Absolutely. But people have the false belief that all of that language is built on a foundation of internal cueing. And, and it's utterly nonsense. So for me, internal language still has a place, but I think the more people start to master their ability to create and curate external cues and analogies, they start to become more comfortable letting unnecessary internal language go. And what it does is exactly as you've identified, and I've had, I've had conversations with a number of MMA coaches on this in terms of coaching from the sidelines. And absolutely, we talk about creating key phrases that either have technical triggers, tactical triggers, or emotional triggers. And just as the physical actions, those words are, are triggering need to be practiced, so too do the triggers. So too does the language need to be practiced and utilized and unavoidably connected to the movements and moments it is meant to influence. But so often the way people communicate and talk about communicating and thinking in competition sits in stark contrast to the way they actually do it in training. And just as training needs to be representative of competition, thinking in our state of mind, our mental models in training need to be representative of competition. And that's what's on offer here. A one-to-one application of how to think during training and the benefit that can be realized in competition. I also love this idea of emotional triggers, which is something that probably a lot of coaches don't think about. Everything they're thinking about is telling someone how to move your body. And I, I sympathize, right? Because coaches have this curse of knowledge problem where they've been doing things for so long that the movement is ingrained in their bodies, especially in our sport, where in jiu-jitsu, most coaches are people who, you know, they, they've been training for a long time. They might have been successful competitors. And now in their gray hair days, they're transitioning to a coaching role. And it's hard for them to remember what it's like to not have decades of experience where these motions are ingrained into your body. And so you see these coaches clearly get frustrated because they're thinking, man, if only I could get all of these white belts to just tuck their elbows in a little bit better or something like that. The focus, the solution seems to be, man, if I, I just want to tell you to do something and I want you to do it. But the mind often doesn't work that way, especially in the face of resistance, right? This is a common problem that happens in jujitsu where 
Yes, maybe I can tell you the 10 steps to this technique and maybe I can get you to the point where you can rehearse it successfully every time when your opponent is just sitting there. But as soon as they start actually trying to resist you and fight you, you can't do it anymore because you were rehearsing for something different, right? So I I love this idea of triggers going beyond just being descriptive, but also helping even regulate the emotional response as well. Well, let's let's play with that for a moment. So for you, Steve, if I offer you two words, they happen to be verbs, action words, okay? Simple ones that you'll be quite familiar with. The word push versus punch. Push versus punch. And if you want to think about pushing someone or something, punching someone or something, okay? Which word's more violent? Well, punch intuitively sounds more violent. Which one feels faster? Punch feels faster to me. Which one gives a greater sense of control? Ooh, tough one. Um, I, I mean, as a martial arts person, punch sounds like it gives a good amount of control. Both, yeah. <laughs> trick question. I threw it a trick question. So here's what we're pointing to. Very quickly, a, a word takes on an essence, right? It has a personality, yep. doesn't it? And yes. push and punch are not the same person, okay? They have, they have comparable but different personalities. One is far more violent, exacting, and damaging than, than the other. And we read that in how the word feels. I'm going to argue to you that if we were to go through and do that again, you first feel the difference. And then only then when I ask you the question, do you summon an intellectual ability to converse with me with words? But it started in the body and then it made its way out the mouth. And so we talk about other words, so such as cinch or squeeze or compress or tighten, or flatten. Each of these words, yes, have a, uh, have a literal meaning, a meaning we could describe in far more words than would be necessary when you compare it to a demonstration. Each of these words also give you an unavoidable feeling, an emotional sense of what it means to bring that word through action into life. And I talk about this a ton when it comes to cue creation. What is the energy of the cue? What is the emotional essence? Which is to say, what is the biomechanical essence and what's the emotional essence needed to bring that to life? Is it a fast movement? Is it a slow movement? Is it a violent movement? Is it controlled? Is there pace change? Is it grab and release? Is it grab and hold? Am I trying to impart greater pressure over time? There are words, there are verbs, there is action language for all of these different moments and movements and essences. The only way, though, you avail of that, that you take advantage of that, is when you are providing one cue at a time and you are directing that action in terms of something, which means you're referencing something outside of the body, the opponent, the interaction with the ground or the mat in terms of how you are exploding towards an opponent, where you're trying to push or maneuver your opponent in terms of the octagon or the mat or wherever the fighting context might be. But hidden inside of words, inside of notably here verbs, action, language, is essence, is emotion. And when we offer that up in a singular fashion, where they can be heard and applied and the oneness can come through the body, it is unbelievable what we can do as a coach and what the athlete can do. Because let me give you by way of metaphor here, what a lot of coaches do is equivalent to putting breakfast, lunch, and dinner in a blender and then asking the athlete to take a sip and said, which meal did you like the most? That's (laughs) what coaching is on the receiving end For so many athletes, they're given so much information, they can't make heads or tails of any of it, and thus it just becomes this blank, tasteless conglomerate of information that really has no purpose, and thus no purpose can be enacted after it. Yeah, I can give a a very jujitsu-specific example of this for myself. 
One of the things about jujitsu that's really frustrating to a lot of new people is there's borderline limitless techniques that you could do. There's just so much variance in terms of what you can actually do in this sport. And each one of those techniques might require perfect execution of 10 or 20 different steps. And in any of those situations, if your opponent zigs instead of zagging, now the technique you're trying to do doesn't work anymore and you might need to switch to something else. So getting cognitive overload and failing to absorb actionable lessons is a very common problem in jujitsu. And I remember I'd been training for about 10 years by this point. I got to the point where I was just getting really frustrated with the fact that even at that level of experience, I was having trouble just remembering everything that people were throwing at me. And one day I just thought to myself, you know what? I I noticed that I was having this problem where people were just constantly grabbing me and moving me around and I couldn't even do the stuff I wanted to do because they had these iron grips on me. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to forget all of the, the, all of these techniques that I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm just going to focus on one thing today, which is don't let them grip me. <laughs> no matter what, do not let them grip me. And it, rather than worrying about perfectly executing every step for something I want to do, I'm just going to focus on don't let them grip me. And if they grab me, I'm going to deal with that before I do anything else. And I'm not going to do anything until I try to grab them. And just forgetting all of the noise and just having one idea in my head shocked me how much better I got really, really quickly as well, because I I had kind of instilled a principle and a system into my head, rather a mental model, rather than trying to just cram endless amounts of information that I simply couldn't recall fast enough in an actual sparring context. And now I've kind of adapted a metaphor around a lot of that language, too, when I talk about how to how to explain grips and when they become dangerous and when they, they don't. I mean, an example I love to give in terms of a metaphor, a general rule in jujitsu is you never want to stick your arm or your leg inside what you call like a person's guard in jiu-jitsu, basically between their legs. Because if you do that, that's when all of those limb-based submissions open up. So if you get arm barred, it's probably because you stuck your hand between the person's leg somehow. If you get leg locked, it's probably because you stuck your leg in there. And I started to realize that the mechanics of this really resemble kind of like a bear trap, right? You've got two iron jaws that are going to snap shut on your leg or your arm, except in jujitsu, it's not two iron jaws, it's the person's legs. And I always encourage people now when they're, if they're having problems with getting stuck in these holes, I tell them, just don't step in the bear trap. Just imagine that those two legs are, it's like a bear trap. It's, you do not want to leave one thing dangling in between there. And similarly, if you do get stuck, the last thing you want to do is try to pull your arm or leg out. It makes it worse. You need to pry the bear trap open. And I, I found that that kind of metaphoric language is, at least for me, it's a lot more helpful than trying to describe endless technical details about how to disentangle yourself from an armbar, right? Because the average grappler is not going to be able to execute those steps fast enough when their opponent is actively trying to break their arm, right? You, you need a faster cue that you can use in the moment. So that's what I like to use when I'm teaching. So <laughs> there's so much there and the brilliance is in the simplicity, right? That's a bumper sticker. It's cliche, but you don't get the term cliche unless it's true. And in that case, it's absolutely true. The simplicity is the resource there because as you've identified, there are so many things that can go wrong if you engage or step into that space that providing, if you would, a mental model that makes it unavoidably obvious that I do not want to engage with that and has an emotional signature that enhances the salience. It stands out to me that I don't want to get into there. It's going to make it far easier to remember. And I love that there's two layers to that. Not only does the bear trap have a perimeter, right? So it kind of defines a space. The bear trap also has an impact on you and that there's a danger involved. But if you do engage in that danger, there's also a danger in how you try to get out of it. And so the richness of that, the layers of information inside of that very simple, visual, memorable prompt makes that, I mean, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to take that. I love that <laughs> example. I love that example. Now, here's a question for you, Steve, though. Have you had any of your fighters you've worked with where that cue didn't work? It's hard for me to really answer that directly because a lot of the advice I give is through the podcast, right? So there's 
tens of thousands of people who listen, and I, I don't always hear back from every single one of them. But generally speaking, I've never had a situation where I, I put that in front of someone and they didn't understand exactly what I was saying. There might be particular nuanced situations where they need a little bit more. Maybe they wind up in a very new or novel situation and they say, okay, look, I understand I'm in a bear trap. I understand that I'm not supposed to pull my leg out, but I'm at an angle where I actually can't pry this thing open. So what do I do? And then they might need a bit of descriptive coaching. But in general, I find the bear trap analogy to be something that is intuitively understood by most people. They just might need a bit more contextual information in certain situations. And so the level of richness in just the word bear trap. Okay, so the the first thing is to come up with that analogy because people are going to be listening to this, Steve, and they're like, okay, how I, I get it. I know it when I see it, right? And I can feel it when I hear it, but how do I do it? It's right. Just because I go to a comedian and I laugh at all the jokes doesn't mean I can come up with the jokes. And that's what, <laughs> that's what we're dealing with right now. People are going to say, Oh, I recognize that Steve or, or Nick, that one made sense when you did earlier, but coming up with the cues, that's the challenge. But that's when the journey begins. This, this is the craft of coaching is being able to do this at an elite level. And so the first thing I want to identify is you clearly defined, you clearly defined what you wanted to have happen. And as a byproduct, what you didn't want to have happen. And that is there's a defined observable space between me and my opponent. And within that space, if I put an arm or a leg, it makes me vulnerable to a takedown or a position that puts me in poor favor. And so you had a defined space. That defined space had a defined consequence. But also, if I engaged and I still succumbed to that consequence, i.e. I put my arm in and now I'm in a poor position, there's also a way to get out of that. And so you had three layers of information, a defined space, a defined space that came with a consequence, and a way to remove yourself if that consequence was bared down on you. That then allowed you to start to think of, okay, what is a physical object that defines a similar enough round space that has an unavoidably obvious consequence that by way of metaphor relates to our sport, the snapping, the clasping, the grabbing, but also somehow relates to how I get out of that in terms of the cinching down on the heavy spring. And you found literally a unicorn cue is what I would call based on your description of that. The reason I ask you the question is, if I give that cue, maybe it works for nine out of 10 people. Maybe it works for 9.9 out of 10 people, but what about the one person it doesn't work with? Or what about the person that's never seen a bear trap, right? Or doesn't understand it. What I wanted to point out there is you did yourself, but just to mirror it because it's so important is when we look at that analogy as the use case for this podcast, look at the DNA of, of what led you to come up with it. And then I would encourage the audience to think about what are other possible options from an analogy perspective that would carry that same DNA. And two came to mind, albeit they're not as good as yours, but I think they could be better for certain individuals if the bear trap one didn't work. And I would talk about a pit, right? There's a pit in between us, literally a hundred foot deep pit. If I wanted to add to the scariness of that pit, I'm going to call it the snake pit. Or I'm going to call it the, uh, the, think of any other venomous animal you want, especially if they don't like it. And so that <laughs> idea of a pit, it's a smaller pit. It's a bigger pit, right? It's a shallower. It's deeper. It has this animal. It has that animal. I can play around with that as a concept and build on that analogy over time and see how it engages with you emotionally, which thus engages with you physically and how you respond to it. But what I want to pull out of it is you offered a great analogy. People write it down. I don't want them to stop there. I want them to open up the door of the Trojan horse, see what's inside, see the internal ideas that you then were able to identify as this is what needs to change. This is what's going on. And that motivated the story that came in the form of the analogy, which simplified what is otherwise a very complex thing to teach. And therein lies the journey, the opportunity, and the one I certainly define and outline in my book for coaches to excel. And as Daniel Coyle said to me, become a communication athlete. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you a question then while we're on that topic, the book, if someone wants to get it, if they want to learn more about it, where do they go to do that? 
it's it's on all the Amazons that I can find, or people. <laughs> it's on all the all Amazons. the Amazons. All the I've I've found Amazons that I did not know existed, but they're there, and so is the book. It's it's on Kindle and and print. Otherwise, people can go to uh, sometimes in remote areas, uh, going directly to the publisher, Human Kinetics. People can get it there. Got it. And the book is The Language of Coaching by Nick Winkleman. Of course, I will put a link in the show notes if anyone's curious. But yeah, I know a ton of black belt gym owner instructors who recommend the book quite heavily. They say that it changed their thinking and the way they play the game a lot. Uh, interestingly, I even know people in the esports community who have recommended the book. So I think you've got some good cross pollination going on there. Great. Well, Steve, yeah, th- thank you so much. And, you know, for people who want kind of the, the fresh thoughts and ideas or, or want to learn more about this kind of in a, in a presentation type form, they can pop over to thelanguageofcoaching.com or, or follow me at Nick Winkleman on all the various social medias. And everything I have out there video-wise is completely open source. The only thing that will cost you a penny is, is, is a book. So thank awesome. you so much, Steve. I greatly appreciate it, my man. You are most welcome. And of course, to everyone out there who wants to get in touch with us as well, best place to do that is the website, bjjmentalmodels.com. In addition to being the best place to get in touch with me, there is also links off to all of the episodes we've ever done, our full database of concepts that we document from the stuff we talk about here on the show. And of course, if anyone wants to go deeper with us, best way to do that is to join our premium service, premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. There's a lot of really interesting structured courseware and content on there. Plus, you get direct coaching from me if you sign up. So please do consider it, premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. Nick, thanks a lot, man. This was a fantastic chat. I absolutely loved it. I think this stuff is directly applicable to everyone in our sport. So I really appreciate you spending the time to come by and chat with us today. Yeah, Steve, thanks so much. And best of luck to everyone listening. Thanks, man. And of course, to all of the listeners, to you as well. Thanks again. Thanks for the time and attention and talk to you next week. 